The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. Thank you, guys. Hey, guys, grab your Bibles. Turn to Mark chapter 10. And while you're doing that, I have a couple of announcements. First of all, we are going to try to have some time here at the end for some Q&A. So if you do have any questions, um, just if you will shoot them to, we got the slide for that? Well, we can never time this thing right, can we? <laughs> there we go. Just leave that up if you guys would. And then uh, if, if there's any questions, just text them to that number right there. And uh, we'll try to take a couple of questions at the end. Um, also, just to throw this out there, um, I'm looking for two different types of volunteers actually right now. One of which, um, we looks like we're going to have another Uganda trip coming up in February of this coming year. And um, I'm looking for some people who might be in the medical professional fields, uh, whatever that might be, um, who might be looking for an opportunity to serve and would want to join with us. Um, it looks like we have an opportunity to maybe do some medical outreach and stuff while we're there. So um, in particular, if there's anyone of you that are part of like a medical field or of whatnot and, and you're interested, if you would let me know and then we can talk about what we're going to be doing there and see if that might be a good fit, that would be great. Um, another thing that I'm looking for is someone who is just really good at making videos. Just video editing, piecing together, little short. We would love to be able to, from time to time, put little videos together showing some of the things that might be going on in the church or in the huddle groups or, or things that are coming up that we might want to really highlight or focus. And, and uh, just looking for someone who might have that sort of skill or ability and are looking for a way to maybe use that to serve in the church. So if, if that describes you, either one of those, um, get a hold of me or someone and um, we would love to chat with you. Um, tonight we're in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 32. But as is always, let's open up in a word of prayer and ask that God would teach us tonight. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to open your word and study it together. Lord, so much of the world doesn't have this opportunity. So much of history hasn't had this opportunity. But to be able to sit here, Lord, with Bibles so readily available, resources to learn and study your word so readily available, in a group of people where we're just blessed with the opportunity to worship and then to study your word together. Lord, it is a privilege that we don't, uh, we just take advantage too often, God. And I just want to thank you for the gift of your word and the privilege of studying it and knowing it. And I pray, God, that as we study these things, Lord, that your word would be our teacher, that your spirit would awaken understanding in our hearts and minds. And I pray, God, that you would have your way that we would resist the temptation to lord over your text and instead allow you to be lord over our lives. So Lord, will you minister to your people through the word. May your spirit be our teacher and our guide. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we've been in Mark chapter 10 actually for a few weeks. Um, we've had some difficult texts. We talked about divorce. Then we had last week, Sam did a great job just taking us through the passage with regards to the rich young ruler and the cost of following Jesus and the idea of leaving things behind so that Jesus is your all and not depending on other things, having other gods. But today we're going to be jumping back into what is a little bit of a continuing theme that's been going on really throughout much of Mark up to this point. And this is this idea of greatness. Now, the disciples have regularly been in this ongoing debate back and forth with one another 
about who's the greatest. They would have this interaction over and over and over, always angling for position. And Jesus would calmly stop and pull them together and say, okay, guys, let's talk about this and go through kind of this teaching using very teachable moments as he would go through. And then they would go and do some more ministry and then it would come up again. And remember in Mark chapter nine, there's one point where it says, Jesus hears them talking and he says to him, hey, what are you guys talking about? And it says, no one would answer because they didn't want to say that they were talking again about who's the greatest. They were just like, Nothing, the view, um, just pretending as if nothing was going on. So Jesus understands it's a continuing thing going on in the heart of the disciples. And it's really a continuing thing going on in the heart of us as people. But going through this particular passage, he's gone through this teaching about the kingdom of God being received like a child. That allow the children to come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. That not forbidding the children to come to him, that it's like childlike faith that we're receiving in the kingdom of God. And then we finished last week on verse 31. The last thing he said that we have recorded is, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The last thing that he says. Okay, important to have that in the background. So he gives this this talk, the rich young ruler, all this is going on. And then look, guys, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be what? First. Let's try this again. Many who are first will be what? Last. Many who are last will be what? Okay. You ready to go? Here we go. And then he turns and begins to walk. In verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. So Jesus talks with them. They've been making their way through the northern Galilee area. And then they've been coming down around the other side. And, and now all of a sudden he turns and there's a marked change in direction. He begins to head towards Jerusalem. And the disciples are watching where he's going. And they're like, are you kidding me? We're going to Jerusalem? And then the more they think about it, now they're afraid that they're going towards Jerusalem. And the reason is, they know what's in Jerusalem. Everyone who is afraid or against Jesus' teaching, everyone who's been trying to beat Jesus' teaching down, trying to end him, the people who earlier in chapter 10 are trying to trap him in the things that he's teaching, the people who want Jesus done with, they're all in Jerusalem. There's tons of opposition there. John the Baptist has tried to take on some of the powers that be. And how did that work out? Well, he's dead. He's been beheaded. He's gone. And so for the disciples, it's just, it has to be a little bit hard to understand because Jesus has been in areas where everyone wants to hear from him, where crowds have been just, just hammering them and pulling at him, almost squishing people in buildings. There's been so many people wanting to hear what he had to say and see what he was doing and benefit from his ministry. And he's leaving them intentionally, it says. And now he's going intentionally, to the place where opposition lies. This is where he's headed. And so they're, they're, they're afraid. And so Jesus is going to tell them, hey, guys, let me tell you what to expect when we get there. I can tell you're afraid. I can tell you're a little nervous about what's going on. Let me tell you what to expect when we get there. Verse 33, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Not exactly the encouraging thing they were probably hoping to hear. What, 
why are we going to Jerusalem? There's like bad things waiting for us in Jerusalem, right? Okay, I can tell you guys are worried. Let me just explain to you what's going to happen when we get there. I'm going to be arrested, beaten, spit on, slapped, mocked, and killed. All right, let's go. I mean, this is, this is exactly what's going on here. I, I, I always have to wonder, those that teach that if you're just following Jesus, if you're doing what Jesus has called you to do, when you're in God's will, things go well. I wonder what they do with passages like this. I wonder what they do with these kinds of things. Because there are some that will take passages. For example, in Revelation, it says that God will open doors that no man can close, and he will close doors that no man can open. And so there are people who take that into an all-encompassing theology that says, look, if God's in something, it will work out. But if you're banging your head against opposition, then that's proof positive that God's not in it, so you should change direction, you're doing something wrong, but you're not doing what God would have you to do. And there's a lot of people that they kind of live their lives based on that. I don't know what you do with this passage then. Because to follow Jesus is to head into guaranteed opposition that he is saying will result in his death. That's where they're going. So they begin heading that way. Jesus confirms their worst fears. I would imagine it wasn't an energetic drive or walk, I guess it would be for those guys. You know, there's sometimes you're going to places like drives to Disneyland take forever, right? Because you're so excited to get there. Isn't that how it works? But drives where you don't want to go and you're like dreading a conversation or something like that, those go fast, don't they? There's something about the way life goes, and I don't know how that is that it works out that way. I was even reading an article recently that said that, um, that sometimes when you get to the end of your life, you look back and it seems like your life has just gone by in a flash, and usually that's just because of routine. When we get into routines and things aren't changed up in our life, periods of time go by faster, and our mind doesn't register the breaks along the way, so it just feels like, I mean, life's not actually speeding up, but it feels like it has. And so they were even talking about simple things like rearranging the furniture in your house. Try this. Go home, rearrange the furniture in your room or the furniture in your living room. Sometimes just simple things like changing things up like that cause you to stop and notice things and it kind of slows life down. And there's people that are trying to study this, how to slow life down. Well, if there was ever a place where the guys would want to slow the journey down, it would be here. They're making their way to Jerusalem. Death is awaiting for them. And verse 35 James, John, and the son of Zebedee come up to him and say to him, now remember, he had just taught them what? The first will be, you forgot already, the first will be, and the last will be, and then he says, now we're going here, and I'm going to be beaten, mocked, ridiculed, spit on, slapped, and die. Let's go. And they start walking, and James and John come up, Jesus, we have a question what would it be? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You know it's going to be bad already, don't you? And just curious, has any parent in this room ever fallen for this ever? Hey, it, does, there, does anything good ever follow that question ever? Daddy, will you, will you just say yes to whatever I'm about to ask you? What is it, honey? Can I do the dishes? <laughs> it's never that, right? <laughs> Can we jump off the roof into the pool? It's things like that. That's the things that follow that kind of question. And so here they are. Will you do whatever we ask you? (laughs) But Jesus is patient. It's a great way to start a prayer. Verse 36, so he said to them, "Uh, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. How is that even possible? I mean, they just had the talk. 
They just had the talk. And they've had the talk over and over and over and over. And, and it still comes up. Can we sit on one side, left and right, in your glory? Jesus has just told them, I'm about to be killed. It's not about who's first. The first will be last, but I'm about to be killed. And their question is to, to angle for position. Now, you have to understand, we do this too. We don't think of it, and maybe we don't see it in the same sort of secession like that. And we can have a tendency to look at the apostles with much more ridicule with regards to some of these things. But we have to understand, when you're looking at the Bible, there's a tendency to look at the disciples as a bunch of idiots that could not get it and look down on them. But the Bible says that the scriptures themselves pierce our own soul, our own heart asunder, and divide our own thoughts and intents of our own hearts. So according to the Bible, we're not looking down on other people in history. We're looking into a mirror. So when we read these things, rather than saying, how can these guys miss it? Our question should be, all right, what am I missing? Like I'm seeing this again, and this comes up a lot in Scripture, and the Bible has the ability to pierce and divide the thoughts and intents of my own heart. So what is it that I'm missing in here? And when you really take a minute to think about this, it turns out that we're not that different at all. See, understand this. The Jewish people regularly made, made trips to Israel, or to, excuse me, to Jerusalem. It's part of their customary, there were feasts that they were required, Jewish men in particular, to go up to Jerusalem. And when the people of Israel went up to Jerusalem, there were psalms that they would say or sing as they went up. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And you don't have to turn there because we're not reading all that. That's a lot. But Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, all of those are referred to as psalms of ascent. And so whenever the people of Israel were making their way up into Jerusalem for the feast, they would sing these psalms. These were the psalms they would sing as they're making their way up into Jerusalem. So you've got songs like, uh, in my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. Or 121, Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And so this is what they would do. When we are in Israel, there's, the way we usually do our tours is we kind of navigate all the way through. We, usually we did it once. But anyway, we navigate all the way through, through the nation of Israel and we kind of go around the peripheral. Not all that un, uh, uh, unlike the way Jesus is navigating here, though we go down into the Dead Sea area as well. But then at a certain point towards the last three or four days of the trip, we make our way up to Jerusalem, which is a higher altitude. So you are literally climbing up into Jerusalem. And it's a really cool experience. I don't know how to explain it to you having never, if you've never been, but, but when you're on the bus and you're making your way up the highway and the tour guide tells you, hey, we're going to be coming up on Jerusalem pretty soon, and there's actually a tunnel that you go through right before you pop out, and you literally come out of this tunnel, and there's the city. There's the big golden dome and the wall, and you just see this city that you've thought about and studied and learned about your whole life. And what we end up doing as we're on the bus is we're singing these hymns. So we're singing these psalms of ascent, just like the people of Israel did, and we're kind of making our way up, and you just pop out of this tunnel, and like, boom, it's like there. It's like an emotional moment as you're going in there. And it feels, I don't know how to describe it, it feels victorious. It feels like we're here. This is an incredible event, and it, it's like this powerful moving time. Well, for the people of Israel, 
the Psalms of Ascent weren't just about the feast that they were going into Jerusalem to celebrate. The Psalms of Ascent also were pointing forward to the day when God would forever deliver them from their enemy, when Messiah would come, when the kingdom of God would be established, and the Messiah himself would reign from Jerusalem there, and that city would be exalted above every other city in the earth, and people would be coming into the city to worship God in that very place. It was a powerful thing for them. So for the people of Israel, going into Jerusalem, it wasn't associated with pain or suffering. It was associated with like an ascent into grandeur. And this had been really just pounded into young Jewish boys and girls from the day they were tiny little children. And so now here's the apostles. They're making their way up. They know they're with the king. They know who Jesus is. And Peter has already made his announcement, you are the Christ, the son of the most high God. They know who he is, and though they keep hearing about this suffering thing, it's not sticking in the same way. And so now here they are going up into Jerusalem, and and they're already back into this mode. Man, we're going to reign. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. Jesus is with us. We're going to kick in the front door. We're going right back into, I don't know what all this suffering thing is, raised in the third day. Maybe it's some sort of thing. I don't know. But we're going in here to reign, and this is what we're going to do. And so, Jesus, I have a question. Will you do whatever we ask on this one little thing here? What is it that you want to do? Will you put us one on your right hand and one on your left when we ascend up into glory? Can we be in the positions of like, okay, you're number one. We'll give you that. But there's like 2A and 2B. That's those two positions right there. And we'd like to be in those. And now, Jesus, let's understand, there's 12 of us. Um, and, and there's three that you, re- I mean, the top three are pretty obvious, Peter, James, and John. Remember, this is James and John saying this. And they must be thinking, look, okay, so clearly we three are more important than everyone else. Because whenever the special stuff happens, you always take us three, you know, up onto the Mount of Transfiguration or whatever, what have you. So clearly it's us three, but we've been talking and obviously Peter's not in the top two. I mean, just obviously, right? Because he screwed up the whole Mount of Transfiguration thing up there. I mean, just ruined that, shut down the whole show. God said, Peter, shut up, listen to Jesus. That's not it. And then, you know, Peter can't be the one because he's also the one that you said, get thee behind me, Satan, when he was trying to downplay the suffering part, whatever that's all about. So clearly Peter's not in the top two. So here's what we can do. Well, let's just put this debate about who's the greatest to bed forever and just go ahead and declare it's James and John clearly and put us into the position that we think and set us up there so that we can go ahead and take care of this. I mean, the whole 12 are arguing. There was that one other guy that was casting out demons in the name, but we told him to stop because, look, we're having a hard enough time sorting out 12. We don't need a 13th, so you quit. And then we got these guys. But even when we were on Mount Transfiguration, the other guys couldn't do the ministry work. Remember, we came down the hill. They couldn't cast out the demons. So, look, enough of all this hassle. <laughs> Let's just go ahead, put us where we're supposed to be, and then all this goes away. And we can reign and rule like we're supposed to do. Let's just settle it and be done with it. So Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Which case, maybe they're, no, 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 mom's with us. She's in. She said it was fine. They'd run it past their mother, the book of Matthew tells us. So Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? This right here, gang, is proof positive that God's refusal to give us everything that we really, really want is grace. It's grace. Give me whatever I want. 
you don't know what you're asking. If I gave you whatever you want, it would kill you. You don't realize it. You don't see it, but it would kill you. And so the Bible, when it says that God will withhold no good thing from his children, it's for real. So that thing that maybe you've been asking God for over and over and over and over and you don't have it right now, just trust that you have a loving Father who will withhold no good thing from you. Pray for it, that's fine. If it's a relationship, if it's a job, if it's whatever the case may be, pray. Ask that God would fulfill the desires of your heart. I don't, a lot of desires that we end up in our hearts, sometimes I feel like, like God's not some galactic tease. He's not trying to put some sort of thing in there and then continue to tease you over and over that you don't have it. So pray, bring your concerns and cares to him. But also trust that if you don't have that thing now, that that's God looking out for you. That is not God holding out on you. Big difference. God's not holding out on anyone. His desire for us is good. So he says to him, you don't know what you're asking. And the reason they don't know what they're asking is because he uses the phrase, the cup. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? And, um, and in, throughout biblical uh, history and throughout the history there at that time, the cup symbolized something that was allotted from God. So, so for me to drink the cup that God gives me is for me to accept the mantle, if you will, to accept the, the, the path that God has laid out before me. So I'm, if I'm drinking the cup that God has given me, that means I'm taking on that which God has allotted for me to carry. But the, the thing that they need to remember is that the cup, way more often than not, actually in the Bible speaks of judgment and wrath and difficulty. So God's the cup of God's wrath. When Jesus says, if there's any way that this cup can be passed from me in the garden, he means if there is another way to save your children and yet satisfy wrath against sin, then then let's do it. But nonetheless, not my will but yours. And Jesus, as we know, drank the cup of God's wrath, which spared us from it, which is really good news. Amen? And so... Jesus is speaking, obviously, about what's coming, that he is going to experience, he's going to drink, if you will, the cup of God's wrath as he hangs on the cross and the punishment for all of our sin is placed on his shoulders. And this is another, Tim Keller puts it this way, he says, this is another example how disciples of Christ are often so quick to claim the benefits of God's kingdom, but so slow to understand the costs of participating in it. So in other words, you're, gonna, you're the king and you're going to reign and we're like your disciples. We're your right-hand men, so let's do it. I want seats of honor. I want to rule. I want things my way. And, and not taking the time to stop and go, so what, wait, how is this reign actually accomplished? What does it cost for me to be a follower? And what, what is all this suffering stuff that you're talking about? We're not that different. And so he says in verse 39, they said to him, we are able. We can drink this cup. We can do this. But Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus knew that they will experience that. They will drink of that cup, if you will. And history shows us that the the apostles all struggled and were persecuted and were murdered, except for John, though he definitely paid his dues as well for being disciples, founders of the early church and followers of Jesus. They paid a mighty price, if you will, to follow Jesus in suffering. But he says to him, you're, you're gonna do that. You don't understand it yet, but that's what's gonna happen. 
But this whole sit at the right hand left, that's not mine to grant. That's for those whom it's been prepared. In verse 41, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, why were they indignant? Obviously, they weren't there going, how dare you bring that up? Don't you know it's about being a servant? Don't you know this is about Jesus? Don't you remember anything he taught? No, they're mad. You brought your mom into this? Like, we didn't bring our moms. I thought we had a rule, leave moms out of this. And now you're bringing moms in. You're coming to Jesus with this stuff. Well, they're just continuing the same argument because they're after the same things. This has been a continual debate. Who's the greatest? Why are you throwing us under the bus? Oh, you were up on the mountain with Jesus. You didn't see the dude with the demon. You're blaming us for not being able to cast out. You wouldn't have been able to do it either. And just this constant fighting and backbiting and who's greater and who's greater and who's greater. And then verse 42 says this. And Jesus called them and he said to them. He just takes such advantage of a teachable moment here. We would not likely do this in our own flesh. We would be like, enough, you're all last. Isn't that what we do with our kids when they're fighting over the front seat? I'm done with the fighting, you're boasting in the back, just shut up, we're going to the store. (laughs) Isn't that the way we usually do it? My kids aren't old enough yet, but it's... It's been said to me once or twice in my younger days. We just have had it. No more of the argument. Why does it got to be like this? Because I said so. But not Jesus. He takes advantage of a teachable moment here. And I'll tell you guys, this ministers to me in a big way and convicts me. Because this passage really is in its core all about leadership, which is really all about followership, if you will, following Christ. But here's the deal. Here's Jesus. He has taught them over and over and over and over the way it's going to be. And they keep screwing up over and over and over in the same way. And instead of losing his cool, it says he pulls them together. He called them to him. It's, it's almost an affectionate term of a rabbi gathering his students around and saying, now let's spend some time. Let me, let me teach you guys again. And, and I know for me, sometimes if something's not the way I think it should be or the way I want it, that can be frustrating. And then maybe you address it. I don't want it like this. I want it like this. Do it this way. Okay, good. Now let's move on. And a few minutes later, it's still not what you want. Look, I told you, I don't want it like this. I want it like this. And our flesh can get so enraged because the way we think things are supposed to go, or maybe something that we think is so obvious to us isn't obvious to someone else, and they're continuing to fall, and we just get frustrated and angry instead of being more Christ-like and saying, look, the fact that they're struggling in this area means this is my teachable moment to make disciples. So, so instead of getting angry at them, he pulls them together and says, guys, this is something you're wrestling with. And even the very na- your very nature as people, as humans in a fallen world is fighting against. There's a reason they don't understand this. It's because what Jesus is teaching them, what he's about to teach us, goes against everything that we want to believe in our hearts because we're so selfish. And so when things aren't going right, when something's not done right, when something doesn't work out right, when someone fails us, we can either react and get angry and say, I'm done with you, you're going to the back of the line, you are certainly not top on my priority or popularity list right now, or we can say, you know what, in humility, I'm going to just stop for a minute, and this is an opportunity to be a disciple maker and teach someone. And I've been to pastor's conferences where they talk about some of this stuff with regards to leading staff or helping congregants through difficult issues or whatever the case may be. And, and I love, my favorite way was the way Matt Chandler put it. And he said, I, I'm stunned by how many times I find myself 
frustrated at the immaturity of someone in my church, only to be convicted by God to realize that he put me in their life to be an agent of maturation in the first place. So think about that for a second. We can get frustrated with the immaturity of someone else in whatever setting, your job, your career, your home, whatever the case may be. Someone's blowing it, they just can't carry their weight, it's driving you crazy and you can get frustrated with them, but it might just be that God put you in that person's life to help them get it, rather than to expect that it's just gonna be done and worked out perfectly to begin with. Maybe God wants you to bend a knee, slow down, come alongside that brother, say, okay, time number seven, let's work on this. You'll fake that smile for a while. It's just, it's just gonna happen. This is what Jesus does. He just continues to seize these as teaching opportunities instead of kicking them to the curb. So he pulls them together. Okay, guys, listen. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, right? Or in other words, he's saying, okay, guys, you know how the leaders in the world all around us that we see that they lord over them and the great ones exercise authority over them. Now there's two really cool things in the way that this is actually worded that can kind of be hidden in the translation but I think are pretty interesting. Number one, when he says those who are considered rulers, a better translation for that would actually be, you know how those that think that they are rulers in the world around. That's what it actually says. Those that suppose that they are, those that think that they are rulers. So remember, you're in Israel at a time when Rome is in charge. And so the Jewish people are under the oppressive thumb of Rome. So they've got Caesar, they've got centurions, they've got soldiers, they've got authority all around them. They've got rulers and leaders all around them. And Jesus is actually saying, you know how all these authorities that we see around here, you know how they think they're ruling? I think that's beautiful. Because sometimes it can be hard to submit to leadership that we don't approve of. But in reality, God reminds us, they think they're ruling. But Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's a word of encouragement if you feel like leadership or your boss or whatever it is in your life, your pastor is making a bad decision. That you can go, you know what? The leaders of the world, their will is actually in the hand of God. God's sovereign over these things. And they can't make decisions that are going to circumvent what God wants to accomplish in this world. So I can freak out about the rulers and I can get angry and they don't get it, they don't get it. But the reality is, he's like, you know those people in the world around you that think they're in charge? Their heart's in my hand and I can turn it wherever I will. That's an encouraging word. So he says this. He says, those ones that think that they're rulers. And then he says this. You know how they lord over them and their great ones exercise authority over them? Exercise authority translates this way, to subdue, to power over, or to function as a despot. So he says, okay, or look around us, look at the leadership models that you see. See how they just rule over one another and they're, in, they're just lording over someone and they, they suppress, they rule as a despot. They are subduing, they're seeking power over the people around us. You guys see that? Do you guys see that? In the world around us, you see that in your jobs, you see that in the the political world, you see that in the world greater outside of our own borders, whether it be terrorist organizations like ISIS, 
Whatever the case may be, you see people who take this idea of leadership and authority and their desire is to use it to oppress, to subdue, to rule over. You guys all see that? Yes? Now look what he says. It shall not be so among you. Here's the translation. It must not be so among you. In other words, followers of Jesus, raise your hand. This is not for you. That leadership model that you see out there where people use their authority to put people underneath their thumb. This is not Jesus saying, it would be a better idea if you didn't. This is a command from the King of Kings that says, the leadership model that you as a follower of Jesus Christ does not look like that. It must not look like that, is what Jesus says. It's a big deal. I mean, other leaders out there, man, they're building kingdoms. They're building their own kingdoms in a lot of places, protecting their own power, protecting their own authority, pushing those that disagree with them under their thumb, pushing people that frustrate them to the side, throwing people under the bus that continually disappoint them or seem to uh, stop or withhold their own progress not you. You do not, you must not lead like they do. And you go, man, that's the way churches should be. You're right, Jeff. You make sure this church is like this. Now, I got to go to work because I got a bunch of idiots working for me, and I got to get them back under my thumb because the place is probably burning down as we speak. Could you wrap this up, Jeff? Listen, it must not be so among you. You should lead people, whatever, whatever area of life you're in, you should be leading people differently. The Bible says in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Not you. You don't lead like that. You're not like the rest of the world. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Some key words in there. If you want to be great, you be a servant. It's the word diakonos, which later will be associated with the office of a deacon. Starts to sound like a church office. It's not what he's talking about right here. It's a waiter. That's what he's saying. If you want to be great, you're the waiter. No, I want to be the manager. (laughs) I want to be the manager. I want to call the shots, tell people what to do, say this is how I'd run it if I was here, and we would do this and this and this, and it would go. So you go, 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 go. No, 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 no. He says, it must not be so among you. You're the waiter. You are the person who looks after the needs of others. That's your role. And you go, well, waiter. See, it could be worse. At least I'm not the bus boy or the, the... person at the front just walking over the table, you know they're new. They don't even get the tips. So, uh, waiter, that's okay. Said, no, just in case you misunderstand what he's saying, then he says that you must be slave of all, which literally means, like, if there's a hierarchy of slaves and this is the bottom, you're here. Like, the slave that serves all the other slaves. That's what he's talking about. Absolutely last in, in, a, in a world where leadership and power is always a race to the top, for the Christian, and see, doesn't like it already, in the nature. See what I mean? 
parent, Bill, parent. No. <laughs> in a world where leadership is always a race to the top, in the kingdom of God, it is a race to the bottom. You guys have heard maybe of things like Moses model leadership. It's the pyramid and you got the one guy on top and then the two people and then the three people and then the four. It says, no, the way leadership structure looks when you're in the kingdom of God, it's inverted. And it's a race to come to the bottom to serve others. Get this. If you're taking notes, this is what you write down. The preeminent virtue in the kingdom of God is service. Hear this. The preeminent virtue in the kingdom of God is service, not power, not liberty, service. One virtue, if you had to pick one and said, what does the kingdom of God look like? It is service. And then Jesus says this, he says, now look, this is going to be hard for you, so you're going to need an example, so watch me. Verse 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the son of man. Do you understand how much authority I have? Do you understand how much power I have? Like we said in the prayer, when he is ascending, is ascending into heaven, he's gonna say, all power and all authority and all the universe has been given to me. There is no higher place. There is no appeal to a higher power. And what is the decision that I made? What does my leadership structure look like? I humbled myself for the sake of others. I will set my position. I will set my title. I will set my rights. I will set that which I deserve aside. And I will use that power and ability and leverage it for the sake of others rather than just making it all about me. That's what the Son of Man came. Not to be served, but to serve. And that's what the Christian kingdom looks like. And I'll tell you, I've been doing this for a lot of years, and some of you guys have been around this too for a lot of years. I've seen lots of people that are jumping at opportunities to be leaders, and lots of people that are jumping at opportunities to lead different groups or lead different ministries. Hardly ever do you see people diving at opportunities to go, I want to serve like the lowest of the low. What's the lowest spot you got at Heritage that I can do? I want that one. What's that? Because our nature is diametrically opposed to all of this. We hate this. Or we love it within the church, but we feel like, but you can't do that at work because, well, I won't get mine. That doesn't work. You don't know what the world's like out there, Jeff. The world out there is different. You can't run a business based on that kind of stuff. Well, I know this. I know that Romans says, be not conformed to this world. That we're not called to be that way. And so what does that look like? Well, lest anyone think we're Baptists, let me tell you a beer story. You guys have heard of Guinness before? You're all like, no, never heard of it. <laughs> anyway, so years ago, there's a beautiful and amazing story about the brewery Guinness from years ago. And Wesley was going through London and England and he was touring and he was teaching a sermon about what it means to glorify God with all of your life. And there was a man there who owned the company that's Guinness Brewery there. And he's there listening to John Wesley do this thing about whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. And he's sitting there taking this in and he's like, I'm a brewer. What in the world, how do I run this business? It's a family business. How in the world am I supposed to do this to the glory of God? But this message lit a fire in this man. And so he decided, all right, I'm gonna do whatever I can to take this one little business right here and to use it to the glory of God. And so here's what he did. 
rather than looking at his employees as a means to his end so that I can gain this massive empire and acquire more and more and more wealth, instead, he, he, for one thing, he hired doctors to be on staff for Guinness Brewery to only deal with their employees. He put college scholarships together to make sure the employees and their children had opportunity to go to school and to learn. He didn't even have to offer health insurance because they took care of everything. He doubled wages. He paid people more than than anyone would ever get anywhere else. And he made his particular job a place where they were drawn to and had a family environment unlike any other place. And you say, well, that's a horrible business idea. I think they're doing pretty well today. I could be wrong. We wouldn't know, would we? (laughs) But the the promises and the principles of God are true, no matter where you are in those things. And so if you're leading a business, I mean, your employees are not there for you. You're there for them. Rather than going, how can I get the most out of this employee so that I achieve greatness? Instead, you're going, how can I help this person succeed and lift them up? But our tendency is it's really easy for us to make things about us. And look, this is a biblical principle all the way through Scripture. Joseph. Joseph had a title and a position and a robe with lots of colors to prove to everybody that he was the favorite. And he made it all about him. God gave him this ability to interpret dreams. And he comes to his brothers and said, guys, guess what? I had these dreams. I'm going to be in charge of all of you guys one day. You're all going to bow before me. God was like, you need slavery. And so he went to jail. And he went to a place where he was humbled for a really long time. And then God used him. And when he was humbled, when he became a humble servant, even looking out for people in the prison, when he was imprisoned wrongly, What kind of guy did he become? Well, God then exalts him, and he goes to number two in command over the entire nation of Egypt. Moses did this. Moses was the most educated, the most brilliant, trained scholar. Moses was a stud. If you read Acts chapter 7, it even challenges this notion that he had some sort of speech impediment. It says he was powerful with words. Moses was skilled. Historians, extra-biblical Try that again. Extra biblical historians tell us that Moses had achieved incredible military battles for, e- for uh, Egypt. He was the man. And in Acts 7, it tells us that at a certain point, he understood God's calling on his life was to be the advocate that was going to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. He knew what God was going to do through him. And so what does he do? Well, he takes it on himself and he beats down an Egyptian and murders someone. Instead of going God's way, instead of saying, Lord, what would you have me do? Instead of servant leadership or humble leadership, he strikes down a guy and kills him and then says, all right, who's following? And that poor brother had to go spend 40 years out in the wilderness tending sheep, learning how to be humble until he got to a place where he said, Lord, I can't do that. God said, exactly, let's go do it. This is throughout scripture. You look at Saul and how he was so focused on leadership. I mean, Saul... Here's something about the the David and Goliath story we never really think about. Think about this. Goliath's in the valley. The army's over there paralyzed. And what is it that Goliath has been saying for 40 days? Send me your best. Send me your greatest. And I'll fight him. And that'll decide. Let me ask you, who was Israel's greatest? How does the Bible describe Saul? He was what? Head and shoulders above every other man. He was the best. And he's sitting over there like a coward, scared to death until a little boy comes along. Sling goes, bam, drop, victory. Things are amazing. Then Saul's like, that was my idea. I hired him. He's on my cabinet now. 
But as soon as the tide turns, as soon as the people are now saying, well, Saul's slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Now suddenly Saul's not the cream of the crop. And what does he do? He starts to freak out and get angry. And he says, what's next? He's going to take my kingdom. And this is such an important message for us. I can remember my dad growing up. My dad used to say to me over and over and over, the day you can beat me in basketball is the day I stop playing you in basketball. And he was not lying. On the day that I finally beat him in basketball, I still, I can picture it in my head right now, he walked off the court angry and never played basketball with me again. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It is, it's ridiculous. But can't we have that same heart in so many different areas? Because we want to protect our position We want to protect our status. We want to make sure we get ours. We need to climb that ladder. And if I'm humble, that guy's going to get it. And then I'm going to be left out. Jesus says, your method of leadership is servanthood. You you want to find your life, then you lose it. If, If you want to gain your life, then you lose it for my sake. The very essence of all of Christianity is based on a call to lay down our lives for the sake of others because this this isn't like a call. Don't misunderstand this. This isn't a call to some moral ethics thing. This is a call to do what our Lord did. Please understand this. This isn't Jesus saying, this is just a good moral idea if you do this. He goes, no, no, you're following me and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay my life down for you. This is what it's like to be like me. You lay your life down for others. And so Wednesday nights when we gather together, the idea is we are here because we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ who make other disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for, right? This is what it looks like right here. We're waiters. We're not customers. This is not the food I wanted. (laughs) It's too cold. It's too hot. It's too small. It's too too big, whatever the case may be. We're not those. We're not consumers that are frustrated and angry every time we don't get our way. We're also not managers that just sit back and tell everybody what to do and make sure that they serve us. We're waiters. We, We go to the table and we pour the glass of water and we look out for the needs of other people. This is what God's called us to. And so whatever area of life you're in, this is our call. Dads, your call is to lay down your life for your children, to lay down your life for your wife, to look after their needs, to serve their needs, to pour into them, to put them first. As Philippians say, to consider others better than ourselves. This is the call. This is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And then, why should we do this? Well, it would be really easy to say just because Jesus said so. That should be enough. <laughs> but I'll give you a really good reason why. Because this is the only way you're ever going to be happy. It's just the reality of it. When Jesus disrobes, washes the apostles' feet, he says, now, do you understand what I did for you? I left you a pattern that you should do this too. And then what does he say? Happy are you if you do these things. And we think we have to fight to keep ours or we'll never be happy. When Jesus has been saying all along, look, if you want to gain your life, you got to lose it. I I had stuff, I don't have time for it now, but there's even scientific studies that say that the more you focus on that thing that you think is going to make you happy, the quicker it lets you down and you become disillusioned with it. There's scientists who are proving this stuff. But we don't need that. we got the Bible. It says it right here. If you want to gain your life, you want to be happy in life, go serve somebody, anybody. 
But this weekend we talked about depression. I meant everything that I said and I wanna sit down with people and I wanna walk through those. But one of the things I'll tell everybody when they're through that, going through depression, when they're going through struggling, when they're at a place that they can do so is I'll say, okay, so how are you helping someone else? How are you pouring into someone else? Because Jesus promises that the people that do that will be blessed. And when you're struggling, I wanna see you be blessed. So let's find a way that you can give of yourself towards others. Your church congregation, how are you pouring into your church family? The scriptures say that we do kindness first to the household of faith and then to those outside the household of faith. Are you serving your your community? Are you serving this church? We could really use it. Lots and lots of places. What about your next door neighbor, your wife, your business, whoever the place may be? I just, this is what God has called us to do. For so whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Amen? Do we have any questions? Just two, great, because we're running late already. I know that we are supposed to humbly seek to be the least, but I also know that I need to strive to be the best at what I do for his glory. How do you balance that practicality? Okay, so for example, I know that I'm called to serve in this particular season of life as a pastor of this congregation. And don't misunderstand, just because you're humble and laying your life down for someone else doesn't mean that God has gotten rid of structure, okay? Um, it, it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be order and that there aren't offices and there aren't things that, are called, that, that we're called to do. But it does affect your attitude and how you operate in those offices. So, for example, God's called me to be a pastor of this church right now. Okay, I want to be the best pastor that I can. But the, the key, right, is right there in the question. I need to strive to be the best at what I do for whose glory? You guys can read it. Whose? His glory. It's not about me. So what I could do is I could say, all right, we're going to build this church around me. And we're going to build this church around what I want and what I think and what I need. And my salary will always come first. And I'll build my own little empire under the guise of Christianity. And people do that. It's, it's just a regular Fortune 500 type approach, but with choir robes on. That's all that is. So you, you could do that. But the difference is this, if, if even the things that I'm called to do, they're also acts of worship before God. And so I want my acts of worship before God to be like legit, right? It's just like if a guest was coming over, you wouldn't, probably wouldn't want at least to serve them peanut butter and jelly. You'd want to do something nice because you have an honored guest coming over. So for me, I will study hard. I go to seminary to learn and to study and to try to get better and better at what God's called me to do. But, but I'm doing that for his glory, not mine. So the moment that I start getting puffed up and start thinking, well, people come because I'm such a good teacher, I'm completely off the rails the moment that that happens. Or the moment that I start going, well, the reason that, that we're doing this, if you bunch of jerks would just get your act together and start pulling your weight, we'd be even bigger. Well, I'm off the rails. So I'm not serving anyone. I'm ordering and lording over people. So you can operate in what God's called you to do in such a way that you're not oppressive, that you're not a bully, that you're not a tyrant, that you're not a despot, but that your goal is to serve others. And so even within our, I start with our staff. I believe, I believe in the pyramid, I just believe it looks like this instead. So I, I'm, if I'm down here, then I start with my staff, the pastors and the, the board guys. And so how can I serve them? What can I do here? Sam, how are you doing, man? What do you need? How are things going? And we start from there. So you can do that wherever you are. So if you're, in a, if you're a, a business leader, then your heart can be, look, I want to be the best business leader I can be. I want the best business I can. I want our business to be as profitable as it can be because I want my employees to make money and be able to pay their bills. 
and I want to be able to serve and minister to these guys in such a way. Really, we even try to make it if, as much of a goal as we can within staff that says, when, when someone leaves a job at Heritage, I want that to be a really hard decision because they feel so loved and so cared for by the church body and staff here. You guys can totally do that. It's kind of that Google thing nowadays, right? Isn't that what they call it? But that's biblical, that you can minister and serve the people that work for you, not trying to squeeze every last little thing out of them and then discarding them like they're just a resource for your business. They're not resources. They're future disciples. That's who you work with. So take advantage of it. Last one. How do I be a servant leader as the head of the home or at work? How do I delegate and serve at the same time? Well, okay, so servant leader at the head of the home. So my daughters have chores, right? They're not great at them yet. <laughs> I'm blessed. They're doing the dishes half the way now, so that's, I hate that the most. So, so I can teach my daughters how to do this stuff, but I can also come alongside and help them and encourage them when they're doing it, right? Because the goal is I want my daughters to learn how to grow up and be able to serve people on their own. Even in my family, I'm raising disciples even in my family. So everything that I do is disciple-making and serving at home. Everything that my wife does is. So, so here's how you can do it. You can say, okay, are the decisions that I'm making with how we use our money or how we use our time, are they in the best interest of the family in general, or is it just serving me? Um, well, I just spend all our extra money on buying video games or going to pro football games or whatever the case may be, or will I say, what are, what are the needs of the family and make sure that I'm looking out for them? And you do the, the same thing really within the household or within your business. I mean, you, just because you're the president or just because you're the leader doesn't mean that you're, you're giving anything up. We think that if we do that, that we're losing our authority and our power and our position and that we've messed the whole thing up, but it doesn't work that way. People, man, when they understand how much you care for them and that you're there to serve them and die for them and care for them, and they will die for you. They will. And the best example of this, I was listening to a guy actually at a leadership summit just a few weeks ago. Um, named Brian Loritz, and it was amazing. And he was talking about this. He travels and has to fly all over the country all the time for all these speaking gigs. As a result, he's accrued this incredible like flight status with this one airline. Super MVP, greatest traveler ever status, whatever that is. So if there's ever a, front, a first class seat that's open and he's on the plane, he gets it no charge. That's just, that's because that's how much he flies. His wife, not so much. She doesn't travel so much with him. So, so when he travels with her, he's got the status for upgrades. She doesn't. And so he said, this is what I did. He goes, just recently, we just did this. I go on there. I go ahead and present my status. They said, there's one seat available in first class. I'll take it. They swap. But then what I do, and you're already, some of you are like, you're kidding. He really did that? And uh, some of you are like, no, he gave it to his wife. No, he didn't do that either. Here's what he did. He went back in coach and he sat down in the seat next to his wife's assigned seat, not knowing who it was that was going to be there. That person comes walking down the aisle and already they're in a huff. Sir, you're in my seat. You know how that is, right? <laughs> Sir, you're in my seat. And he goes, actually, I, I know that this is my wife. I'd like to sit with her, but I actually have a seat in first class. And why don't you just take that one so I can sit here with my wife? And they're like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. Look, did he lose his status? No. When Jesus stooped down to serve us, is he not king anymore? <laughs> no, of course not. It's just a completely different style of leadership. But it's a godly style of leadership. And I want to challenge you guys. Man, some of you guys have heard these teachings a million times. 
but let it stick. Go home, ask yourself, okay, if this is what servant leadership looks like in the kingdom of God, how do I do this at work? How do I serve the people that are there instead of looking at your employees as being there to serve you? It doesn't mean that standards have to fall because if you let your, if you let your company crumble because you're serving your people, that's, everyone's gonna be unemployed, right? So you don't do that. You still have to have standards, but you're approaching with a completely different attitude because you wanna serve the people that are there. But you're not doing it for you and you're not doing it for your company, ultimately. You're doing it for the kingdom so that your employers will say, why would you do this for me? Why are you looking out for me? Why are you there to care for me? Well, because you know what? There's one who is there to care for me. And let me, let me tell you about him. I learned to lead like this because this is how Jesus leads me. And you get the opportunity to share the gospel with people. I tell you what, when you have a track record of teaching them, they'll listen. They'll listen. Amen? Let's stand and pray, can we? God, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you for conviction. It's a good thing. I thank you, Lord, for direction, for encouragement. More than anything, I thank you that this is how you've led us, that this is the way you've poured into us. That, Lord, that you thought it not worthy of holding on to this idea of being God, equal with God. You were willing to set that title and that position aside that you might humble yourself and become man. That you would come here and experience the bruises of life just as we did. And then take on our punishment for our sin on our behalf. I thank you, God, that this is the style of leadership you exhibit. I thank you, God, that you're with us in need, not demanding what we do to get out of it. I thank you that you're near the brokenhearted. And I pray, God, you would help us all to continue to have a, a godly and kingdom perspective towards the work that we do. Lord, will you bless us as we lead at home? Will you bless us as we lead in the community? Bless us as we lead um, in, in our churches, in, in our in our fun, in our recreational activities. Bless us, Lord, I beg you, will you bless us as we lead our families. And Lord, may you be glorified in everything that we do. I thank you, Lord, for this evening. I pray, God, you would give these people rest that they might go and serve you to an even greater degree tomorrow morning as well. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. I love you guys. We'll see you Sunday morning. God bless.